Well, we've talked now for three weeks, and you guys have managed to go through a very difficult subject if you've stuck it out for those three weeks in a conversation about pornography. Again, if you're, if, this is a PG-13 level series, and so if your students or your children are here under that age and you're not comfortable with them in this conversation, I would advise you to send them over to children's ministry at this time. But really, I want to engage this final piece this week in a broader conversation. We've had already in our first week, we talked about the statistics and the brain chemistry involved in pornography and what it does to men and women in our minds with the rutting, the habitual factors, the things that have been created by, the, by this explosion through the internet and other places. We began then to examine how our children are being affected, the percentages and the rates of which most children before the age of 18, now many of them at the age of 10 or less, have been exposed to pornography and, and ways that we need to be defenders, the way that we need to fight for children not to be tempted. Last week, we began to talk about the battle and we looked at the struggler and what they need to do, the four movements of repentance and sanctification, transformation in, in the struggler, and also the one who's been hurt. Because in all of this conversation, there are these two sides of those who have been hurt by those who are struggling, and yet those who have struggled and have been hurt themselves. And we kind of process this on purpose in this manner, to talk about the fact that this culture has exploded this thing upon us, that many people today have a, a very strong struggle or addiction because they weren't looking for it, but it found them amidst a very world washed with sexuality and washed with pornography. And then now we see that the battle is, is at least at the, at the beginning place of trying to break chains and beginning to work through this in a personal level. It, it requires a lot of effort and a lot of transformation from getting rid of and, and then processing and passionately following after Jesus Christ. And we began by talking about that movement as demasking, getting rid, being open so that we can get to the place where we have broken these, um, these, these legs of the stools of the habit of pornography. And as we began to reveal this, we also started to see, hey, the hurt has their own masks, their own struggles, their own traumas now that they now have to deal with and that process. But in all of this, what it's reminded me of is the great and horrific struggle of slavery. And I don't know why, but there's something about the spiritual dynamic of chains involved in all of this conversation. And I've watched and, I've watched and had enough, have enough experience in the movie world and had enough conversations with different people and done enough history to know that chains are always involved in slavery, not just uh, the United States slavery, but in all forms throughout history, it is always finding people in chains. And in our country, especially, as I imagine the oppression and the horrific nature of what happened throughout that, these people weren't looking for this. They were arrested. They were stolen away. They were chained away. They, many of them killed, put, in, put into doing things they never wanted to do, never intended in their lives to do, born into this mess. And, and it took, in fact, something great. It took a war to end it in our nation. It took a war to stop the issue of slavery being slavery. Now there's much more still on the cleanup process and all that's still going on in our culture, but to stop slavery itself, it required a war. And in the same manner, in the same way today, when we look at the situation of pornography, it is ubiquitous. It is enslaving and enchaining people everywhere that we go. It is found on every, on, ev on every aspect of the internet, in our lives, in our very grocery stores, it is found everywhere. And it's constantly leaking out, looking for a way to chain people down, looking for a way to bring people into an enslavement to this part of sin. 
And it's going to require some very difficult battle. It's going to require a long-distance battle. And when you add up battles, it becomes a war. And it's not just simply a physical war. I'm not here to talk about a physical war. I'm here to talk about a spiritual situation in which our battle and our breaking of chains needs to begin and occur. Not by our own strength, not by your own victories, not by your own abilities, but through the victory already given to us in Jesus Christ. You see, we need to start right here at the beginning of a conversation about, quote, the war. And you got to be careful nowadays when you talk in this language. But I want to be careful to, to know, I'm not talking about a physical war. What I'm talking about is very clearly a battle that you and I are raging in our souls, for our souls, in a real-life situation where we're cutting things out, we're fighting for our marriages, we're fighting for our children, we're fighting for our culture, and we're having to deal with all of these chains surrounding us. And we need to see chain-breaking as already been done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, even though it looks bleak, even though it looks impossible, I want to tell you something. Jesus is the one who told you that if he calls you free, you're free indeed. That the truth sets you free. And this kind of concept welded into the mind of his disciple John so that in one of his letters, he actually said, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. It's the faith that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It's the faith that he has broken the chains of sin so that on the cross, those chains have been wrapped upon him. The punishment has been taken by him so that we can have access to the very God who breaks the chains. And it's entrusting what he has done on the cross, it's entrusting what God has already done for us, that we stand in victory and we live then in victory. If you try to do it yourself, you try to do it in any other fashion, there are plenty of other ways to hook your chain to some other thing in life. There's only one who can break them. There's only one who's already broken them at the cross. And we need to begin with that concept. And so when I talk about this bigger battle, when I talk about this idea of a long distance journey in which we have to press forward this war that we're in for our souls, when it comes to pornography and sexuality in general in our culture, it's really going to have to be one we have, that we believe has already been one in Jesus Christ. It's when we stand already in victory and we work from that victory that you begin to have freedom. But how do we do it? How do you really have a long distance victory? Let's not just talk about theoreticals. Let's put it into practicality. In fact, here's what's a beautiful thing. Paul, the apostle, in a letter to a group, a church in Galatia, already gave us that battle plan. And it was an interesting battle plan. You see, his entire argument in the church of Galatia was to tell them, guys, it's not about getting locked down in rules. It's not about getting locked down in to-do lists and how you manage this and how you manage that. That is only a slavery of itself. And he would know he was a Pharisee. He had lived out a life in which he followed every single rule meticulously and believed that he broke one. He was no longer connected with God. In this case, he says, no, there's no way to have that kind of victory. The only victory you and I can have is when we live in a victory in Christ. When you, he called it, walk by the Spirit. That's his terminology. And that meant live according to the leading of the Spirit, according to his word and his direction, the presence of God in your life. And as he says you do this, you begin to bear fruit, a maturity, a kind of character starts to flow from you. And it's defined as love and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and the big one for those of us who struggle with lust, self-control. Not a control that controls others, but a control that's given to you by God's presence. A self-control. 
And he says, here's how you begin to do that. He then says, kind of help each other out. You know, build each other up. Be with each other. When somebody struggles, lift them up. We talked about that last week. But now he goes on in, in the rest. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. He, he uses an agrarian picture, something we don't really do. We don't, unless you got a garden and you get this, most of the time we don't understand that when you've got a farming community, you, you take a bunch of corn and you sow it. You just throw it all over the place in the fertilized, prepared ground. And then it's buried over and it starts to grow. And what's beautiful is as you sow corn, you, and, and it's good conditions and there's like the right kind of weather, you reap more corn. You don't sow corn and reap wheat. You don't sow corn and get Volkswagens. No, you, you get what you put in the ground. And the reason why is because what you put in is what you're going to get back and you're going to get back more. So Paul says, be careful, guys, because if we're giving into our flesh, if we're running back to pornography, if we're running back to pride, if we're running back to anger, if we're running back to bitterness, if we're running back to the sins that we've talked about, you're only waiting to reap a larger problem. But what we do is instead, each day, as best as we can, we reap and we sow to the Spirit of God. We sow love. We sow peace. We practice patience. We practice joy. We practice self-control. We deny ourselves and move forward. And he says, in this action of sowing to the Spirit, you will reap more self-control. You will reap more love. You will reap more patience. You will begin to build a character that grows and grows and grows. But you know what? This takes a lot of time. And so he goes on to say, let us not then grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And in this very verse is a long-distance plan to break the chains. To break the chains in the midst of this war that must be fought upon multiple fronts. It is a long journey, a long distance of constantly doing good that, yes, you can get weary of. You can get worn out from. He says, no, no, keep going. And so I want to lay out the three fronts that we have to do this in, that we have to continue to just keep pressing and keep sowing to the good, sowing to the Spirit of God and the victory that he's already given us. How do we move forward? We do it one sow at a time, one simple seed at a time. And so we start in the front of our family. And I want to begin here because we've talked so much about our family. We've talked about our children. We've talked about broken marriages. But it's even more than that. It's about a long distance with our families. You see, pornography and sexuality is one of those places that will quickly break a family. And some of you have experienced what that feels like as you've gone through the pain of, seeing, of, of the mask being pulled off, not, not, by, not by the person who's struggling, but by you. You're the hurt person. You caught them. You pulled it open and boom, there's just a mass amount of injury and hurt that begins to tear at the bonds because God intended that bond to be built by that sex drive. He intended that early bond to be there. And so our marriages are broken. With family units for our children, there is huge breakings of trust and fear that infuses the parent's soul. And a rebellion that can infuse the child's soul. And we need to be careful of this because we need to battle to break the chains in our family. And that includes all of us, no matter how old you are, how many grandchildren or children or future children you may have, everybody here needs to participate in the breaking of those bonds. Whether it was you at the seminar last week and you collected a whole bunch of great information how to protect your, um, protect your home and protect your environment in the, in the midst of all that stuff or, or in the middle of all this pornography, or it's this other move that I want to talk about, and that is trust building. You see, I've already told you guys that 
the hardest part for the hurt person to do and to get to is not forgiveness, it's trust. We're called to forgive. And if you don't, you only injure yourself. In the act of forgiving, you're releasing that person to where God is their judge and God is your judge. And you let God be the one who's going to deal with it. And you know full well and you hope full well that Jesus Christ has borne those sins and given us victory. And that enables the bitterness to die. That enables you to feel free to forgive. But it doesn't mean you trust. Trust is a long distance journey. It is the primary rebuilding that occurs in the middle of this problem. If you want to talk about breaking chains, it's about building trust. And trust building is that sowing daily over and over and over. I'll give you a simple example. There's a man named Paul. We already talked about he was an apostle. But before he was known as Paul the apostle, he was known as Saul the Pharisee. And Saul the Pharisee was on a murderous rampage, endorsed by the, Israel, the, the state of Israel, the state of Judea at the time. And he went out finding Christians, arresting them, bringing them in and killing them. And one day on his journey to Damascus, Jesus showed up, knocked him down, brought him to know him. He repented, turned around, became a preacher of Jesus Christ himself. People were confused what's going on. The persecutors suddenly become an evangelist. We're totally, what's, what's going on here? And so notice in Paul's own dialogue, in that same book of Galatians, that same letter, he tells, the, he tells the church, look, I had been transformed. And it, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. His argument is basically, you can trust my gospel. I got it from Jesus. You know, it took me three years before I even went to Jerusalem. And the reason this is interesting is that in another book written by Luke, who is a historian in the book of Acts, He says that actually when Paul got there, Peter and the apostles wanted nothing to do with him. Three years had gone by from when Jesus had had knocked him down and brought him to the faith. And so now he shows up in Jerusalem, three years of him preaching the gospel, three years of living in Arabia doing this, and they go, no, 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 we don't trust this guy, we don't want to see him. Three years of being faithful and they still weren't sure. You think trust isn't hard to build? It took a man named Barnabas to step up and say, no, I know this guy. I've seen this guy. I know what he does. You can help. You can bring him in. And Barnabas vouched for his veracity, vouched for his integrity, vouched for the transformation. And in that, they spent 15 days, 15 days talking through the gospel, 15 days. I don't think this was a, hey, Paul, let's have dinner and hang out. I want to get to know who your mom was and where you grew up. No, this was a 15-day, hey, who are you? What are you really preaching? What's going on here? We don't trust you. You killed our people. What is this? Is this real? And I think what we see here is a very good example that if the apostles had trouble trusting, though they didn't have a problem forgiving, We can expect that it's going to be a long journey. So what I want to tell you today is as you begin this war, think of the battle, think of it as a long journey. Yes, it's going to have times where the person who is struggling is is going to be tempted and fail and they're going to have to reveal again and they're going to feel hurt and you're going to be like, I got to forgive. How do you trust in this situation? First and foremost, you have to understand trust is like a one person put it, and it's a great book um, that's out there called Worthy of Her Trust. If you ever want to get that book, write that name down, Worthy of Her Trust. He explains it, the author explains it as like a giant Lego sculpture. You know what Legos are. And, and as you slowly put little pieces together, every time you do a little bit, a good trusting deed, something that you, you see is good, you're putting one little block on a Lego sculpture. That takes a long time to build a Lego sculpture. 
And one little block at a time, as every little bit of trust is reinforced, it grows. But once there is a vouch of a break in that trust, the whole sculpture doesn't break, but a whole bunch of work that you just did comes crumbling off. And so he says it takes time and it takes effort. How do you do that? Except with one simple sentence. Think about it with me for a minute. If you've got a son or a daughter and they're taking off and it's evening, it's, it's, it's like they're 17, they've got a car, and they're telling you, I'm going to so-and-so's house, and it's 8 o'clock at night. All right, be home at 10. One, you find out they didn't go to so-and-so's house, and two, they weren't back at 10. The next time they say, I'm going to so-and-so's house, what are we going to say? Oh, yeah? How can I be sure? You've broken trust. The way you rebuild trust is you do what you say you're going to do and you say what you've done. It's the only route. You do what you say you're going to do. If you say you're going to be on the internet doing this thing, that's what you're doing and you can show it and reveal it. If you're, in, if you're out driving somewhere, you're going to that store, that's where you went and you can prove it. You simply say what you're going to do and you do what you said. So your child goes, I'm going to Bobby's and they go, okay, they're going to Bobby's. They call over, did he get there? He's there. All right. You know, I'm be home at 10, and they call you. I'm not going to make it at 10. i got a flat tire on the side of the road. Well, where are you? Can I come help you? Yeah, Dad, if you want, I'm over here. Oh, that's going to build trust. He's telling you the truth. See, truth has to be exposed. The mask has to be completely removed, or there is no building of trust. There is no breaking of that chain. Every time a link is broken, it needs to be exposed. Every time you've dinged into step, you need to be exposed. Every time there's a misstep and a fall in temptation and a struggle in a direction, there it needs to be exposed. Why? Because if you don't do that, every little time that you have a victory is never known. All they know is the failures. It is victory upon victory upon victory upon victory that begins to motivate and make transformation and builds trust. And we need to have this with our children. We need to have this with each other. That means the boundaries that we talked about, all of those things that we talked about last week. But the long distance is the rebuilding of this trust, brick by brick by brick by brick by brick. And it doesn't ever stop. We're always going to be building trust and moving trust, and eventually we'll see this as a relational dynamic that's in everybody's life, regardless of what the sin is. We have to build trust in one another. We have to be real with each other. We have to let our yes be yes and our no be no, as Jesus said. And so I want to encourage us that this may be a long journey, but we need to fight it in our families. It needs to be there. We need to be protecting our children. Moms and dads, it doesn't end when your kids leave the home. That's some of the, most, the times they need us the most. Now, you're not there to control them, but you're there to advise them. You're there to lead them. You're there to talk to them. You're there. Hopefully, they're giving you the trust and you're pouring it back and forth. When they have children, I hope that you're still engaged with them and that there's, you're still having dialogues about how'd you handle this with our kids? Because my kid's psycho. What's your kid? What was I like? You were psycho. You know, however that works out. And what we need to do is have those dialogues. Never stop parenting. Never stop protecting and loving and guiding and leading a family. But also, whenever you're involved in any of this stuff, you need to remember to have grace, have grace, have grace. As God has had grace upon us, let us have grace upon those who fail. If your spouse accuses you unnecessarily, even though you've been doing well, you have grace. If they, have a, if they sin against you and they've taken that step towards that again, and you're like, uh, you need to be able to forgive, let the crumble fall, and start rebuilding, but have grace. Have forgiveness. 
Be ready to persevere because what did he say? In the end, as you give grace, if you're the hurt person, as you forgive, you are reaping forgiveness. You are reaping grace. You are reaping the benefit of having the greater character. And in that, you begin to break chains in your own life. You begin to walk in a victory that is not your own. It is Jesus Christ who has given it to you. And so we need to step into this process. We need to step into this perseverance, into these prayers, into this fight. But we need to do it more than just a family. That's why the second front is so important, guys. The second front is our church family right here. If we don't start fighting here, it's going to continue to break down. Let me explain. If that 65% of of Christian men are struggling with pornography on a monthly basis and 15% of women, that is us living like the world. And we need help. And that help can only be found as we gather together and as we begin to realize we lost something. You see, then early on in Israel, they, or late in Israel, actually, they had prophets who would come out and speak things. And one of the prophets' names was Hosea. Hosea had stepped forward to, the, to Israel and he'd said, guys, you're not listening anymore. Hey, priests, you're not teaching anymore. And here's the problem. Because you don't understand what God is teaching, you are being destroyed. He put it this way. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you reject knowledge talking to the priests who are supposed to teach them, I reject you from bringing a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, so I will also forget your children. His point was to the priests, his point was to the teacher, because you haven't disseminated the truth and they haven't taken it in, because you guys who ought to be in the know aren't, we're destroyed. When I look around at the church that is seriously struggling, trying to figure out what is good art, what is bad art, what should we allow in our homes, what should we not? What should we wear on a t-shirt, what shouldn't we? It says that we've lost our knowledge. There's something about the way that we think as Christians that is more like the world and its sexualization than it is about what the biblical story says. Let me give you an example. Probably one of those most uncomfortable moments in my life, but you walk in, and me and my, my friend had, uh, we're just hanging out together, and we're like, he was in from town, and he's a good-looking guy, and, you know, I'm the ugly one of the two, and so we're walking in to this restaurant, and I go, yeah, for two, and we go to sit down, and you're sitting there really uncomfortable suddenly, aren't you? You're like, this, is, this, this feels weird, like, why is everybody looking at us? Because we're laughing, we've known each other for years, you know, and suddenly you're thinking, dude, people think we're gay. What is with this? Because I gave him a hug before when I saw him. What, what, what is it? I don't know. They guarantee you, you see two men who grab hands and hold them close. You're like, hey. Since when did holding hands become sexual between two men? Because we think sexually. Why can't a man look at another man and say, I love you, and not have to add man at the end of it? Because we think it's sexual. Our minds have become so corrupted that we don't understand when a man is approaching a woman as a, sis, as a brother to sister relationship versus a sexual relationship and it's wreaked havoc on the ability to figure out how to even find a date for single people. And, they begin, and, and ladies, have been, you, you've been trained that men are always sexually on the prowl. They're all, and so you have this kind of like, weirdo, what you talking to me for? I've seen it. Because you think sexually. 
this is not the biblical worldview. This is not, this is what the world has washed us with, to train us with, to think that everything that men think about is sex. That's all we think about. Actually, there's large portions of our day where we don't think about that. I don't know what we're thinking about, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) Actually, what I want to challenge us men to do is to recover some brotherhood. Return to the biblical concept of brotherhood within the church. Notice what he teaches Timothy, the leader of the church. He says, listen, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So encourage an older man as a father. Rebuking means not not just... You mean he? No, he's a leader. He's saying, no, lift him up. How do you help them move forward? You, you talk to him as a father. You talk to younger men as your brothers. You treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And the point is that we can begin to see each other as brothers and sisters, not objects to enjoy in our minds. That's what lust has destroyed for us is the ability to feel like we're brothers and sisters. And I'll tell you what, there's some powerful relationships that are missed out because we're afraid that this can't happen anymore. You see, in, in, in certain cases, in small groups, men won't gather together anymore to ask themselves a question, how are you doing with lust? How are you doing with pornography? How are you doing with this stuff? When we, that should be one of our regular routines in our small group. As women get together, ask the same questions. Have you been hurt by it? Have you been hurt by it? How do we support each other? How do we pray with each other? A regular routine in a small group ought to be that ability. It also, also should be the ability for a man to say, how can I help you to a single mom And not people suspect something because they're in need. For a man to be able to advance to another lady who is prep, who is being a godly woman and just go, you know, how can, how can we, I don't know you. I'm your brother in Christ. What's going on? And not feel like, Hey, you're looking for a date. And the important reason that this needs to be recalled is because honestly, we've lost it. There is a lot of men looking at women lustfully, even in the church. And guys, they know it. Ladies know it. They see it. They see the looks. They see, but, God, but also ladies know that we, we sense you. You come in the room and guys, bing, woman's here. Dead serious. It's a powerful reaction that God's produced, but it's heightened in our culture and we need to fight it back so we can gain a brotherhood and sisterhood again. How do you do that? Try praying for the women in the church, guys. Try serving them. Try literally helping them out, caring for them. Yeah, doing things that maybe they don't want us to do, like walking them to the car in the dark of a, in the dark of a parking lot. And maybe that's not popular, and maybe that's not really the right thing to say, because, hey, you know that girl could take you, know, take you out, whatever. Last time I checked, I wouldn't mind her help either. You know, it's like, we're going in the parking lot. If he jumps me, you take him. You know, that kind of thing. That's fine. There needs to be a mutuality here. But if it's your sister, treat him like your sister. Care for him like your sister. Lift him like your sister. Care for Pray for them like your sister. Instruct them like your sister. And sometimes that means, hey, yeah, I'd like to hang out with you. But I I really, you're dressed inappropriately. I, I don't know what to tell you. And that happens. And that's where I kind of want to flip it for just a second because, guys, we need to think about brother, brothers also. So just watch what's on your T-shirts, please. There's a lot of raunchy T-shirts being produced. Just watch, watch what you're wearing because there are other guys who are struggling with what you're wearing. The flip side, 
Ladies, I want to challenge you guys to think of an internal beauty instead of an external beauty. You are externally beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But there's an internal beauty that's been washed over and lost. I mean, how many women are beautiful on the exterior and ugly at the core? I would rather see a glorious throng of women who are absolutely beautiful in the deepest sense of value. Notice how Peter puts it. He said, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, and clothing you wear. This was all the problem in the ancient world too. And he says, here's the solution. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the, imper- with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The word there, precious, is not precious. It's extremely valuable. It's deeply valuable. God values it at the maximum. Now, let me put it this way. I'm not... When it says a gentle and quiet spirit, I know a lot of women are like, oh, it means I'm meek and quiet. No, no, let me put it this way. A gentle and quiet spirit is one that is so confident in your value in the Lord, you're not constantly seeking to gain it from somewhere else. And so you dress to gain it from somewhere else. You long for it from somewhere else. You're constantly about in your spirit, upset and pushing because the gentle is controlled with their emotions, capable of managing what they're feeling. Capable of managing their internal, their internal expression of their will. That's a gentle person. Though they could use power, they've got it under control. And a quiet spirit is one that is settled. Are you at peace in your soul about your beauty? That no matter where, how you dress or how you appear in, a, in an audience, that you aren't unsettled? That's a difficult thing Many women in our culture are wrestling to get to. But he says, this is what is beautiful. To God, when you find your value in him, when you find your beauty in him, no matter who is staring at you, you find that value and beauty. And so I just want to say, uh, just a little bit more crass, and I'm going to take some people off, but I get that. And my wife says, this is her sentence, so I'm okay. I feel a little bit better on better ground. Don't, you know, there's some clothing, ladies, you don't have to wear in public. Save it for the bedroom with your husband. That's where it belongs. Let him enjoy that. Stop wearing body armor to bed. Can I say that again for the husbands in the room? Don't wear body armor to bed. Don't like throw every sweat thing on earth that you should be wearing out in public on and like, okay, I'm going to bed. If if it's that time where it's supposed to be intimate, don't do that. It's a habit. I get it. It's comfortable. It's cold. I get all that stuff. But there is one place for that, for that expression of your beauty to be held, and it is there. And in the public, it's not there. And if you do wear that stuff, expect men will look. And it's not the best men in the world looking. It's not. Because the men who are trying not to look, those are the ones you want to know. They're not going to look at you. They're going to be like, I've got to go somewhere else. So I want to encourage you guys to consider these things. We need to treat each other. Men, we need to treat women with value. We need, to, we need to not gawk and do this kind of horrific stuff that turns women into objects. That's, that's, that's a rough call for all of us. What I'm calling for is that we become brothers and sisters in Christ. We have these honest conversations. Try it at your small group and find out what happens when it's a safe environment. But also include single people, please. 
Can I just tell you one of the worst things that's happened in the church with the issue of pornography is single people have been broken off into their own segments. In the battle over the marriage, we've overly focused on the marriage to where we are, we are so centered on the marriage that it's everything in community. You want all of the community to happen in your marriage. No, we need more than just a marriage to have a healthy community. You realize single people struggle with pornography primarily because they're lonely. When they wake up in the morning, unless they're calling their sister or their mom or their dad or a brother or something, they don't have anybody to talk to. When they go home at night, they do their own laundry, they make their own beds, they do their own wash, they do all that's all by themselves. And who are they talking to? Alexa? It's growing. Single moms are running around crazy trying to provide for their children with who's, who's being the role models of good men? Who's revealing to them what it is to be a man? This, is, this, is, this hits my own home. This is hard for me because we are busy as married people. And the question is, how can we invite into our busy lives those who can be a part? Because guess what? Single people need married people. They need children in their lives. Single moms need married people in their lives. And guess what? Married people need single people in their lives. I love my wife, Teresa. She's awesome. But there is a point to which we just can't keep filling each other's cup. She's like tapped. You know, it's like, I gave you everything. You gave me everything. I think we all need to go hang out with some other people for a little bit. Because that's how we're made. How can I keep pouring into her if nobody's pouring into me? And so what happens is she goes and hangs out. You know who's always ready to talk to my wife? A single lady who lives in Indonesia. Ready at a heartbeat to talk to my wife. You know who's ready to hang out with me? Not my married friends. They're like, dude, I got, I'm busy. I got like 19 kids. We're going to baseball and all this. And you're like, okay, yeah. You know, I call my single friends like, Shh, yeah, let's go to the movies. I'm like, sweet. We need single people in our lives. They're ready. They're available. They can go. They can move. Oftentimes they are ready because they need you and you need them. And so if you're getting married, don't cut off the single world. Bring them in. It enriches life. It makes it better. It enables all of us to fight pornography easier. Why? Because we're less lonely. In those men have always been my best accountability partners. You know why? Because they're not thinking about a thousand other things in their life. When they wake up, they go, I wonder how he's doing. And they're the first ones to ask me. The married guys is like 10 years later. They're like, oh yeah, how's that going? And I got to admit it. I do the same. And so I want to challenge us to keep single people in our life. Keep them as accountability company. Allow us to be role models. All of this, this is part of being a brother and sisterhood in Christ. We can't allow ourselves to be separated or divorced from each other because of a fear of sexuality or other things like that. No, we are beyond that. We are unified in Christ by the same spirit that God has put in us. Be unified together. Let's care about one another. Let's fight against the sexuality that wants to drown us in idolizing and turning people into things. Now, front one, family. Front two, church. Front three, culture. Here's the drowning location. 
Here's the fearful zone. Here's the place that the chains are made and they're forged upon us. What do we do? Well, here's what a Jeremiah was told as he were marched into Babylon, into a location that was so exotic and so covered with false gods. And yet, here's what God told the people of Israel when they were marched out of their own home. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Go to Chick-fil-A, you know, that kind of a thing. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. In other words, create next generations in this foreign land. But seek the welfare of the city. Where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God has never called us to divorce ourselves away from the the very culture we live in. He's called us to seek to bless it. He's called us to seek to shift it. He's called us to seek to care for it. He's called us to pray for it. He's called us to be the ones doing good. So that when we do good, in time we will reap a harvest. Don't stop doing good. Don't cease pressing in. Don't stop doing the small, what seems incremental. In the fighting in your family, in the helping in your church, in the transformation of these locations becomes the transformation in the culture if we continue to persevere and bless the very community that we live in. And so be a light in your community. Don't be the hammer. Let other people see the results and the things that you've done to, hey, we, we got this great information on how to protect our DNS and how to make sure that our, our, our iPhones and stuff are locked down. I wanted to pass this on. We got this great stuff. But just so you know, so your kids are protected too. Just wanted to let you know. They may think you're crazy. They may be like, well, we let our kids look at porn. That's fine. We don't care. And you're like, okay, I don't think my kids are coming to your house. Whatever. But you don't hammer people. We care. We pray for them. We open the door. We, we open this opportunity. You know, we fight with prayer. The book of Ephesians says this isn't a battle against flesh and blood. This is a battle against spiritual powers. And the nuclear weapon of that battle is prayer. When you look at Ephesians 6, 18, prayer becomes the centerpiece. It says, all things pray. Are we really praying for our culture? Are we really praying that God would transform people's hearts, make the biggest difference in our city, make big movements to where this is becoming transformed? I mean, if we're not doing that, the next parts don't matter because we need to fight pornography culturally. What do I mean by that? There are some great things that have been done. You can start writing campaigns. You can start conversations. There have been, the Hilton hotels themselves were so overwhelmed with the deluge of requests that they would end pornography. They shut it down in all of their movie systems. They don't offer it. Because people got up to say, this is ridiculous. We need to stop. There are entire movements that are rising up around us that are secular. They're saying, this has destroyed our lives. We need this to stop. There are Christian organizations you can join to stop sex trafficking, to stop pornography, to stop child pornography, all of the exploitation stuff that's out there, and we can help them. They help women and men come out of the adult industry. They help other people move out of all of this, all of this world to begin to re-hook their lives into reality. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you're struggling with this, stuff, don't go join those ministries. But if you're called to fight this in the culture because God has blessed you with a strength, fight. We need men and women who are willing to get in, invest, and do the work 
culturally to stand against where we can, joining arms with other people and other organizations, be them secular, Christian, or otherwise. Finally, though, let's change the cultural current. The only way I know to change a cultural current, to really bless the people, is to produce cultural goods. To become people who produce. Guys, the church ought not to be consumers. We ought to be producers. We ought to be the ones writing the stories. We ought to be the ones doing the blogs. We have to be the ones out there in making the newspaper articles. We'd be the ones who are engaged in our culture in dynamic manners that begin to change the narrative. Because if we're just consumers, guess who's producing right now? This has been driving me crazy all week. You know what bothers me the most? There are pornographers working 24 hours a day at times to produce this stuff to give it to our children and to our families and to the strugglers and to all these people. And they're working hard to produce evil. And you know what? What are we doing? You know, the church that is actually making progress in cultural forms and transformation, the Mormon church. They're the ones producing literature that everybody's reading. Really? Like what? Well, like that weird vampire stories that were there a little while ago. Mormon lady. There's all kinds of television shows. They've got Mormon writers. Now, there are Christians out there doing great work. We've met a few of them, like Mike Vogel and those people like that. But you know what? We need more. We need more of you to capture the vision for the arts. Capture the vision for the news. Capture the vision for blogging. Capture the vision for giving a better and bigger world. You see, you've been given the word of God. You've been given an opportunity to take some of the stories, some of your stories, and share them with the world in a manner that transforms people, that seeds into the heart of the soul of a child, seeds into the heart of a soul of a struggler, seeds into the heart of the soul of the hurt. And they become able to stand firm because with the encouragement you've given, you give it away. That may be support groups. That may be ministries. I don't know what it means, but it's between you and God. But we break the chains by doing good step by step, fight by fight. And this is the way forward. And I want to challenge us to think about how are we going to enter into break these chains? Because they need to be broken in the family. They need to be broken in the church. And they need to be broken in our culture. And God has given us the victory so we can do so. I want to encourage you then to rise up. Let's break some chains. Why don't you bow your head for a minute with me? Because I want to talk to a specific group of people in the room right now. Some of you are here and you heard about the, you heard about the series on pornography. You came to listen. And I've been saying this a lot, but it, I've been saying that you cannot break these chains without the chain breaker, namely Jesus Christ. You see, what Jesus Christ gave, what he delivered to us, is the, is the ability to break the sin. Because God has the power to transform our lives. But sin keeps us away from God. Sin is the thing that he can't have in his presence. And so if that is removing us from God, how do we have the power to win? And so on the cross, Jesus Christ bore our sins. On the cross, Jesus Christ took away that which kept us from God and he brought us into close proximity in a relationship with God again. But if you haven't received his work on the cross, the chains hold you from the presence of God and his power. And it begins with just simply receiving what Jesus has already done for you. It gives you the victory. 
It's not a matter of all kinds of things you do to get good or be good and stay good. No, he's good enough for you. And he heals that relationship so that you can now begin to walk in his victory. And if that's where you're beginning, just start here. Maybe you need to receive that work so you have that connection with God and it is clean and clear. And just start where you're at and just say, God, I'm asking you to break the chains. And I trust that Jesus Christ has done that for me. Would you please come now into my life and lead me through it?